Shane Whaley, who founded the Spybrary podcast, coined a really funny saying, which he said when he reads Ian Fleming, he wants to be a, a spy. And when he reads John le Carre, he wants to be a chartered accountant. Well, I guess you need to put down that Vesper and pull out your calculators as we head off into the world of John le Carre. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. We leave the fantasy world of Ian Fleming's James Bond behind to delve into the grittier, more realistic world of John le Carré's spies of the Cold War and beyond. Both Fleming and le Carré arrived on the literary scene in the 1950s, and they fed two different sides of the public's fascination with espionage. Fleming's 007 provided the escapism, and le Carré lifted the veil on the real world of spying. But both men inspired a wealth of cinematic adaptations that will keep their legacies alive for generations to come. I want to let John le Carré, speaking at a South Bank Center event, provide his own introduction. My literary cover name of John le Carré and my fictional spy, Mr. George Smiley, were born on the same day in 1958 on the same first page of the same first novel in a small back room on the third floor of Leckenfield House in Curzon Street in London's West End, which in those days was the enormously secret headquarters of MI5. By secret, I mean, of course, that every London taxi driver let out a knowing (laughs) chuckle when you gave him the address. And bus conductors plying Park Lane had to be restrained from yelling, all out for MI5, (laughs) when the bus pulled up at the Curzon Street stop. I hope that whets your appetite for a discussion of le Carre's work and the film and television adaptations he inspired. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be joined by my favorite secret cinema agents, Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest. And since we're about to enter the Cold War, I thought it would be fitting to head into the break with a cold turkey. So here's Sterling Anno with something that needs to stop. Sterling Anno here from the Horrible Imaginings, Oceanside, and San Diego Underground Film Festivals. One thing I'm cold turkeying is Todd Phillips' Joker. Unapologetically, I feel baffled by this film in which I cut my finger on its high school edge. Uh, one film that I can't believe how overrated it is in today's society, masquerading of high cinema, of the Scorsese degree. That said, one thing this filmmaker has done that is a true gift by giving us Joker is turning on an entire generation of filmgoers onto Scorsese cinema without them even knowing it. I think that's fantastic. A great way to uh, realize what you should be watching, actually. Um, Even though technically, by seeing it, you just watched uh, two great Scorsese films in one uh, in a downgraded fashion. So that is it. Thanks, Sterling. Get yourself a strong cup of coffee or maybe a shot of whiskey and settle down for a discussion of John le Carré and the fascinating works he created exploring the real world of international intrigue. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back. We're reconvening our group of spy aficionados to talk about a different kind of spy. Last time we discussed James Bond and the fantasy spy. Now we're going to turn to a more realistic look of the world of intelligence and counterintelligence, courtesy of author John le Carré. Le Carré wasn't the first author to inspire films that tried to suggest what espionage was really like. In the 1930s, Alfred Hitchcock made spy films like The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes. Listen, everybody, there's a woman on this train, Miss Troy. Some of you must have seen her. They're hiding her somewhere. Do you hear? Why don't you do something before it's too late? Please, please. I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm not. I'm not. For heaven's sake, stop this train. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Then, in the 1940s and 50s, there were adaptations of Graham Greene novels like Our Man in Havana. This is a top-secret item. A map locating undercover activities. For each little pin here, there is one little spy. There, for example, our man in Jakarta. But the most unusual agent of them all was our man in Havana. A very likable chap in a most unlikely situation. Frankly, when they asked me to be their man in Havana, I had no idea of how a spy spies. But I had reasons for being willing to learn, and they were anxious to teach me. I asked Jeff Quest and Gary Dexter to recall the earliest films to deal with spies. And Jeff dug way back for some examples. Well, I mean, you can go way back to the silent era. I mean, you have Fritz Lang did a couple of spy films. And, uh, I mean, even Buster Keaton, right? I mean, the general has spies in it. So um, you can go really far back. But I think you're right to kind of set it a little further. I think when we think of modern spies, we think of the Cold War, and so we don't really see that kind of gritty spy film start until kind of when you get to the 60s. The book the world could not lay down now stands with the great motion pictures of all time. John le Carre's magnificent best-selling novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the real no-holds-barred inside story of espionage. From one side of the Iron Curtain to the other. Of Lamus, the spy, who's been there and back. The man who has seen the dirt as well as the dazzle. Certainly like the modern context, Jeff's spot on there. I'm, I personally tend to associate it with the earliest uh, adaptation of Buchan's The 39 Steps. There were two men there who wanted to kill me. Really, you should be more careful in choosing your gentleman friends. No, 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 you don't understand. Well, you don't make it very easy for me, do you? Beautiful, mysterious woman pursued by gunmen. Sounds like a spy story. That's exactly what it is. Only I prefer the word agent better. Agent? For what country? Any country that pays me. Now, what is your country? I have no country. Well, with some of those early 
Hitchcock spy films, they still had a bit of a cinematic flavor to them. They were a little bit more realistic than what we might consider the Bond films to be, but they still, you know, there was still a bit of a cinematic flair, a bit of Hollywood going on there. My good girl, I'm accused of murder. Can't you realize the only way I can clear myself is to expose these spies? You still can. The man's going to the London Palladium. Really? First house or second house? I'll get there five hours late. Fine. The show will just about suit you. What's that? Crazy month. So... As Jeff mentioned, I think it really was the 1960s where we start to see a real significant and distinct shift in tone. And the film for me that I remember vividly was the 1965 adaptation of John le Carré's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold with the absolutely fabulous Richard Burton. We have to live without sympathy, don't we? We can't do that forever. One can't stay out of doors all the time. One needs to come in. In from the cold. I'm an operator, Control. Just an operator. There's a vacancy in banking section which might suit you. Sorry, I'm an operational man. I take my pension. I don't want a desk job. You don't know what's on the desk. Paper. I want you to, uh, to stay out in the cold. A little longer. So does this kind of feel like the turning point or at least a, a, a touchstone for that? It definitely does for me. That's one of my favorite all-time espionage movies. It's also one of those rare beasts of a uh, very, very faithful adaptation of its source novel. Yeah, and I think it's definitely um, a, a key milestone on the road, if not the, if not the origin of sort of the modern style of plausible, if not realistic, spy movie. Now, I'd say uh, since the war, our methods, our techniques, that is, and those of the communists have become very much the same. Yes. I mean, occasionally, we have to do wicked things. Very wicked things, indeed. But uh, you can't be less wicked than your enemies simply because your government's policy is benevolent. Yeah, I'd agree with Gary. I think this was really the one of the first films to grapple with the Cold War and the way that we think of it nowadays. You know, although it was something that Hollywood was thinking about even earlier. Billy Wilder, right, did one, two, three, which is a really fun movie, but it was filmed right when the Berlin Wall went up. And so they were like trying to figure out how do we incorporate this into this actual this movie that we're filming right now in Berlin. The Western sector, under Allied protection, was peaceful, prosperous, and enjoyed all the blessings of democracy. You know, Hollywood was trying to, as it always does, how can we monetize whatever's happening in the real world, right? And at that time, people were scared, people were worried about what was going on in the world, and starting to feel a little more jaded about the government, I think. And so I think you see some of that cynicism kind of start to leak into the movies that were released. Before we start talking about the film specifically, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about John le Carré and also a little bit about Ian Fleming as authors and also as people who were involved in real world espionage work and how they kind of translated their own personal experiences to literature and, and kind of made different choices about the kinds of literary work that they did. I owe a great deal to Fleming for one reason only that Fleming produced, by writing that type of romanticized, heroic, amoral novel, 
he produced what you might call a counter market, which I was able to satisfy. Well, I think when you look at the two authors, they are very different. And you can see that even in the way that they started in their career in espionage. John le Carre was recruited as a uh, college student to spy on his fellow uh, students by uh, MI5. And then he later went on to work for MI5 as an adult and then also MI6. So he had a real grounding in espionage. He was overseas in Germany, uh, recruiting and running agents in, in all accounts and in very difficult circumstances. And contrast that with Ian Fleming, who during World War II was like the assistant to a spy master. Um, and his his thing was coming up with all sorts of crazy, bizarre plans to try and put one over on the Nazis. And um, I think when you look at that, you can really see the distinct difference between how their approach to spying was and why Lacare is known for his more, you know, gritty realism and Fleming is known for more fantastical espionage. Um, I, I, well, I, the only thing I would add to that, because Jeff's done an excellent job of um, explaining the, the differences, really, is one, one thing that I think informs their respective writing is that in Lacare's case, his father was a notorious con man. You know, he he basically uh, Lacare led a life that was uh, sort of dictated by that, that, where he'd find himself in um, situations where he was sent to private school, and then his father couldn't afford to pay the school fees, and. Uh, you know, he was incarcerated as well, and um, that's reflected in a number of Lacare's stories and, and background characters in his work. In contrast, of course, Fleming was a child of great privilege. He, he lost his father in the First War, but he uh, was raised in a, in a sort of very privileged context. And, uh, you know, he, as we've probably noted before, he set out to write novels that gave the British public, who was still going through post-war rationing and the windswept and wet island, uh, a view of the world beyond and luxuries and privilege and locations that many of them would never see in their lifetime and certainly you know not until economical jet transport did did the public at large be able to experience such a thing so i think each of them um and their writing uh, is is informed very much by that that very different experience do you think the fact that they both actually worked in espionage helped to make their novels kind of unique in terms of what was being offered to the public? Was that part of the draw and attraction that people had? Or did people not know that that's what their background was? John le Carre very famously denied that he was working, you know, he had worked for any sort of secret service for a long time. He was just known as somebody who worked in the foreign office. No, I, I don't want to answer that question. But it was a pretty open secret that there was something more going on there. As soon as you say you're a spy writer, there is a certain portion of the audience that's going to assume that you have some sort of spy background, whether that's true or not. And people are very willing to uh, take that on and, and accept that mantle, whether it is true or not. Um, and so I think that's just part and parcel with spies because we're so used to them playing with the truth. Yeah, that's very true. It's a sort of unique position for an author to be in because, you know, people that write books about serial killers are not presumed to be serial killers themselves. So it's kind of unique to the to the espionage genre. I think in Fleming's case, he, he didn't really make any, any bones about it, um, about having worked for 
Admiral Godfrey and uh, his role as described by by Jeff during the war. But uh, again, as Jeff just said, uh, Le Curry is infamously dissembled throughout his uh, writing career about the degree to which he did any spying and the significance thereof. And really, it was only in more recent later interviews that um, at least he dissembled a bit less. Um, and to some extent, I think that was a bit of a necessity after the biography was published. And what do you think it is about Le Carre that struck a nerve and made him popular or, or brought his work to a level of popularity with the public? I mean, I would say it was the fact that you got the sense that he's telling you how it really works. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell balancing right against wrong? Whether it was or not, and I think... He took pains to say that it was fiction, what he wrote, especially The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, but it felt real in a way that movies hadn't figured out how to do yet. And I think that's what really was just the, you know, thing that rocketed him into the stratosphere as far as popularity. There was a sense that this is what's going on behind closed doors, and I'm going to show it to you. And how do you not want to know? You want to know the secrets. We want to know the secrets that are happening, right? There's a mole right at the top of the circus. He's been there for years. It was his style, really, that that lent the sense of authenticity to it. And so much so that a lot of the vernacular that he coined for the purposes of writing books, then penetrated the intelligence community for real. You know, most famously, the, the phrase mole, of course, tradecraft and a number of others. So it was very much, I think, a style that he wrote in, informed by his own experience, to just create this sense of uh, verisimilitude. A lot of the joy of Lacare's books is just reading the, the character interplay, the dialogue, and the way people relate to one another. And in the faithful adaptations, of course, that... That makes the viewing equally pleasurable. And what do you see as the things that really define his work that have translated to film well? I really enjoy, personally, espionage fiction set in the Cold War era and and particularly sort of the 50s through the 70s because he's perhaps most legendary works are in the sort of 60s through 70s when you see these adaptations, I'm thinking particularly of the last adaptation with Gary Oldman of Tinker Taylor, the attention to detail of recreating that very sort of drab 70s environment and uh, middle-aged, very grey men with very weighty responsibilities, you know, try, trying to hunt out a mole. Um, a story, of course, inspired by, by the Philby treachery. Where did you get this? I didn't. Percy and his little cabal walked in with it. Look, control... Shut up. Style appalling, patently a fabrication from beginning to end. Just could be the real thing. Well, if it's genuine, it's gold dust. But its topicality makes it suspect. Smiley is suspicious, Percy. Where did it come from? What's the access? A new secret source of mine. 
But how could he possibly have access? He has access to the most sensitive levels of policy making. I really enjoy that. I really like seeing how things were at that time and looking at the technology that people had to use then and the complete absence of cell phones. You know, it's, that, that for me um, is very engaging. Yeah, I was talking to a friend not that long ago and they said all of Lacare's books are really about betrayal in some way, shape, or, or manner. And I think that's really pretty true. Um, you know, there's just a certain amount of, of kind of cynicism that's in his work. And I think when you look at film, especially, you want to have characters that you're invested in. And why wouldn't you be invested in somebody who has had some sort of betrayal uh, put upon them, right? You know, melodrama is the essence of... Uh, of good filmmaking, I think, to a certain extent. And so I think you, when you see that on screen, you're invested in the characters, you want to watch their stories and see how it works out. There's a rotten apple, Jim. And we have to find it. I know that it is one of five men. All I want from you is one code name. Well, and the other thing is, you know, I think you look at Bond films have stayed relevant by continuing to update their take on the modern world. Because, you know, Fleming wrote his last book, what, in the 60s, right? I mean, so, but Lacare, his writing career went on so much longer than that. So you got to see him write about the spy world in modern times and shift as it went. And I think that's made him and also made the films made of his uh, books more more relevant, more interesting, had kept people coming back. It's not just because they're set in the Cold War. We've seen movies since then that are set now and speak to the issues and themes that we're dealing with. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I need to take one last break and then I'll be back with Gary and Jeff to finish our discussion of Le Carre and Real World Spies. Welcome back. Let's pick up our discussion with Jeff addressing why the realism of Le Carre's stories hit a chord with audiences. As much as we love the escapism of movies, we also want to see some reality in those. And I think at that point in time, when everybody was so nervous about the Cold War, we wanted to see somebody who would tell us 
something that we anticipated was re- the reality and not just the fantasy that we've had of we had had of spies up until then look your job and mine permit us to take human life if i want to kill you and i can only do it by putting a bomb in a restaurant and that's the way i'll kill you that's what i'll do innocent people die every day they might as well do so for a reason Afterwards, we may drop a purely academic balance. 20 men killed 15 women, 9 children, and an advance of 3 yards. What about you? If ever I have to break your neck, I promise to do it with a minimum of force. I also think society, the way it was changing from the mid-60s and particularly into the 70s, was far more ready to embrace moral ambiguity. Um, And that's something that is very, very different, say, between... Lacare and Fleming. I mean, Fleming's very much a black and white uh, archetypical story, and the villains are usually actually suffering physical disfigurements to sort of further highlight them as the bad guy. And Bond, though not an aspirational character, is very much clearly the protagonist and the hero of the hour. And and Lacare, and it's never more evident really than the spy who came in from the cold. He's very very keen to put across in his writing that. You know, that there are no good guys and bad guys. It is all about perspectives, and the perspectives themselves are not stable and constantly shifting. And the, and the people doing this work are, are as non-aspirational as it's possible to be. I don't believe in Father Christmas. I don't believe in God or Karl Marx. I don't believe in anything that rocks the world. But how do you sleep? You have to have a philosophy. I reserve the right to be ignorant. That's the Western way of life. I couldn't have put it better myself. You think ignorance a valuable contribution to world knowledge? You fight for ignorance. Go to hell. <laughs> Look, all I want to know is why. What's the motor? As a matter of fact, I invented the combustion engine and the two-way nappy. I'm a hero of the Soviet Union. I wear the Order of Lenin on my rump. I'm a man, you fool. Don't you understand? A plain, simple, muddled, fat-headed human being. We have them in the West, you know. That's what it's all about. Well, another thing during the 60s is, you know, once you have the Kennedy assassination, for Americans, it feels like we have this certain loss of innocence at that point in time, where, I don't know if we grew cynical at that point, or just felt like we could handle some of these darker kind of ideas better, but it seems like that point in American history is sort of a turning point culturally on a certain level, and I don't know if that made doing films like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or adapting more realistic spy novels, something that seemed that audiences might be more willing to embrace at that particular moment in time. I think that's very likely, especially, you know, with its proximity to the to the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world at large was confronted with the reality that, you know, we got very close to wiping ourselves off the face of the earth. This government as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. And and those two things together couldn't do anything but um, cause a sea change in, in societal attitude. Kennedy assassination, you know, led to these, you know, conspiracy theories about what happened there. And I think that plays right into then the the kind of next loss of innocence that America had with Watergate. And, you know, I, I, I think that plays right into the 70s and all those conspiracy f- movies that we end up seeing at that time. 
And do you have any particular adaptations, film or TV, of Le Carre that you'd like to single out? It's no surprise, and it's Alec Guinness's portrayal in the in the, the BBC television series, and and then later Smiley's People. Vladimir's dead. Shot dead on Hampstead Heath. Too bad. That old man, huh? Too bad. Oliver Lakens asked me to sweep up the bits. As you used to be the group's postman, I thought I'd have a word with you. Sure. You knew then about his death? Read it in the papers. Any theories about who did it? At his age, George. After a lifetime of disappointments, you might say. No family, no prospects, the group all washed up. I assumed he had done it himself, naturally. Naturally. Anyway, you didn't do it, which is nice. <laughs> George, you crazy? That was, I, I think, that it's a demonstration of how iconic it is, that although Gary Oldman's portrayal of Smiley is its own beast, but he, he essentially sought out the exact same pair of glasses to personify the character, because, you know, that was something that... Guinness latched onto and made it so iconic. But it, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a movie, and the movie iteration is very different. But it, I think it's um, still very underrated uh, the, the movie adaptation, and I think it's extremely good. I'm retired, Oliver. You fired me. The thing is, some time ago, before Control died, he came to me with a similar suggestion that there is a mole. He, he never mentioned his suspicions to you? No. Oh, I just thought it was just you were his man, so to speak. What did you say to him? Well, I'm afraid I thought his paranoia had rather got the better of him. He's going to put his whole house down. That bloody mess in Budapest. Damn it, George. It's your generation, your legacy. But as I said before, for me, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, it's not only one of my favourite movies, period, but it's such a great adaptation from, from the novel to, to the big screen. And, and shooting it in black and white at a time when, you know, Technicolor was the norm only adds to the air of menace and ambiguity and confusion. You'll never get away with it, you know. What will they find in the morning? Empty cells, Lemus. Open doors. Escaped prisoners, a car missing. There's a conspiracy, you know. I shall have to find the guilty ones, the accomplices. You know where I shall find them? Amongst Fiedler's friends. Conspirators, scum. Drive carefully. Goodbye, Lemus. Yeah, I think The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is great, but I'd have to say my favorite Lacare adaption is probably The Constant Gardener. You've been cleared, by the way. Thought we'd get that bit of unpleasantness dealt with first. Cleared for what? Um, of what? Uh, murder most foul. Seems you didn't hire contract killers in a den of vice after all. Deasy is satisfied it was a crime of passion by our dark medical horse. Just a question now of finding Bloom. Arnold Bloom is gay, Bernard. Gay men don't rape their women friends. Well, I've known one or two very savage queens in my time. And, and, that's, and it's funny because that's a film that is only maybe ta- tangentially spy-related. 
but I think it's probably it's the it's the one version that I feel has added to the material versus you know being something that's maybe taken away or just been different. I think it made that book stronger in the way that it was filmed, the acting, the the performances were just uh, outstanding and the director did an amazing job. It's just, it looks beautiful and it was, it, it rightly won a number of Oscars because I think it was just so, so well done. And I think Lacare viewed it as his favorite adaption of his work. Now, you did mention that there are TV adaptations of his work. And one thing about television or the, the series format is that for books that are fairly complex and have this sense of like layered betrayals and on top of that dealing with themes of espionage and how governments work and how, you know, all this stuff plays out, the longer format seems to allow for a little more time to develop some of that with a little more clarity and a little more depth. So do his books maybe sort of lend themselves well to that serialized format on television or Netflix or, you know, any of these streaming services? The Night Manager was was such an enormous international success that I think it introduced a lot of people to Lakari, particularly folks from the younger generation. And, you know, it's it's afforded further opportunities for, for adaptations in, in the long form. My name's Pai. I'm the Night Manager. To bring the money to us, we give you back the point. You'll be in so deep, you'll worry that you'll never get out. I got nothing to lose. Go! You saved my boy. Welcome to the family. And of course, we saw Little Drummer Girl, which for me, the television adaptation is vastly superior to the, the earlier film adaptation. We believe that you have talent and this being wasted. And if you decide to collaborate on this performance, you will never be wasted again. What's the character? Oh. You'd let me die ah! just to get to them, wouldn't you? And I'm hoping we'll see more of that. There's a there's a long rumored readaptation of the spy who came in from the cold, but um, it seems to be stuck in the infamous Hollywood development hell at the moment. But uh, I'm hoping that it comes to surface. But I mean, there's a huge body of work from which to draw from, so um, we're, we're not short of potential adaptations. To move away from Le Carre just for a bit, another author from the 60s, or not from the 60s, but whose, whose work was adapted uh, in the 60s and became popular, and one author that I enjoyed reading was Len Deaton. And his spy, if I remember properly, in the book never had a name. But in the movies, he was embodied by Michael Caine, who became the character of Harry Palmer. You have forgotten your name. In truth, his name is Michael Caine. And no one will forget his name. Michael Caine. He walks straight into sensational stardom in the Ipcrest file as he gets right under the skin of the brash, cocky, wry-humoured Harry Palmer. The soldier seconded from the army for security duties, who's never far away from a girl, and always closer than close to trouble. As far as, um, as Michael Caine, as Harry Palmer in those films is concerned, I, I think it's fantastic. I re-watch those films very regularly. And of course, they were produced by one half of the, uh, the Bond producers, Harry Saltzman. Um, and you always get the sense when Kane is playing um, Harry Palmer, but you always get the sense that uh, he's almost winking at the camera. 
It isn't usual to read a B-107 to its subject, Palmer, but I'm going to put you straight. Insubordinate, insolent, a trickster, perhaps with criminal tendencies. Yes, that's a pretty fair appraisal, sir. Good. That last quality might be useful. You, you have quite a sort of anti-bond, you know, as, as, were, as were the books, where, you know, there's discussions about impenetrable paperwork and forms that have to be filled in in triplicate and so forth. And yet at the same time, you're kind of seeing London in the swinging 60s. And, you know, every time you see Harry walking down a London street, you're half expecting him to sort of wink at the camera. So I, for me, that's the... That's the joy of those, um, and, and certainly some, some very realistic um, aspects of espionage in them. Yeah, I would say those books and films, they kind of like split right down the middle, Bond and Le Carre, in that it was a very real kind of feel towards spying, yet with some really fantastical elements mixed in there. Induction of psychoneuroses by conditioned reflex under stress. What does that mean? It means I know now why 17 scientists cease to function. Yes. Look again, boy. I P C R E S S. Ipcris. The Harry Palmer character is a very uh, working class person, which is not something that you really have seen either in Le Carre or with Fleming, right? So he has this more uh, grounded and more relatable kind of uh, background, which I think was was refreshing to see. We've been focusing a lot on the 60s, and as we move towards the 70s, one of the things I noticed is that there seems to be this greater sense of paranoia, and we have this genre of kind of like the paranoid thriller. And Jeff, you brought up the fact that we're, we have repercussions from Watergate and that creating a, a whole different sensibility. What do you think about the films that are coming out around this time in the 70s? Films like The Conversation, Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor. Condor is an amateur. It's lost, unpredictable. You could fool a professional. I work for the CIA. I am not a spy. I just read books. We have games. We play games. What if? Seven people killed. What are they kind of signaling that's different, and what do you find interesting about their depiction of espionage and that kind of world? Well, I would say, you know, they lean into the fact that, you know, who watches the watchers, right? You know, who's keeping an eye on them to make sure that what they're doing is not putting us in more danger than than we would be otherwise. And it it's interesting that you know a lot of those movies were made before the the prime start of watergate the conversation came out in 72 which is right when that was all going on this is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors a world where nothing is private you think we can do this later in the week harry call is an expert the best there is let me tell you something about harry call the best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? 
the best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. But I, I think there was something in the national mood, either, you know, from Vietnam and the way that was handled to to just a, a growing sense that maybe we can't trust what the government's going to do. And it just came pouring out in this amazing run of films. You know, Three Days of the Condor is one of my favorite spy films in that it has a spy who loves to read books, and that's his job. So, you know, how can I not love that? What does operations care about a bunch of goddamn books? A book in Dutch. A book out of Venezuela. Mystery stories in Arabic. Wait, what the hell is so important about... Oil fields. This whole damn thing was about oil. The fact is, they made it exciting, uh, an exciting film experience as well. So, more, my, my hat's off to them as well. Yeah, um, well, no surprise. We're very much in sync there. It's, it's, uh, Three Days of the Condor is absolutely among my my favorite movies of any genre, and I like how uncompromising it is as well. It's a it, it's a, it's a savage movie, but and it's got a, a very very satisfying ending you know the, the conversation i think is very much about the human cost on people of doing this job i mean the end of that when when hankman's character is is losing his mind and pulling his apartment to pieces is is really traumatic to watch hello we know that you know mr cole for your own sake don't get involved any further we'll be listening to you you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the human cost of doing this kind of work for protracted periods of time? And I think the Parallax View is one of the earlier examples of an espionage movie is essentially um, about sort of corporate malfeasance and investigative journalism. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. Joe. Joe, we went through all this six years ago. When I agreed to take you back in January, I made two suggestions. One was about your drinking. Well, you seem to have liked that. The other was that you curb your talent for creative irresponsibility. You can start working on that right now. You're really tired, aren't you? Um, as with so many movies in the uh, 70s, it has a really uncompromising ending. And you kind of have to be in the right, the right headspace to to rewatch that film, but I think all of these movies have come about, as we were saying, because of you know the back end of uh, well, actually, to, to what Jeff said, the beginning of Watergate, really. But it was that moment in history where, post Kennedy's assassination, in fact, post both Kennedy's assassinations, um, and then Watergate, you know, people have really, really had their faith in government shaken, and you you know you see that reflected in art. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, the modern day popularity and resurgence of spy movies. And I think it's for the exact same reason, you know, this go around, we've got distrust in the government and extreme polarization as well. But I think those two moments in history are, are reflected in, in art for the same, same sort of reasons. the spy films based on real life spies that stand out for you um for me i really in the more modern era i really like breach about the, the robert hansen case with the fbi traitor that one's a favorite of mine he's a traitor eric 
Started spying for the Russians, we think, in 1985. He's given them military secrets. Intelligence secrets. He gave them our continuity of government program, which told them where the president would be taken during a nuclear or terrorist attack. And the vice president. And the Congress. And the cabinet. The damage he's done to the U.S. government is in the billions. But that's just the money part. He's also given up lives. Yeah, I've read the, the real-life account of that Grey Day, um, and it, it does a very, very good job of representing the key elements. I mean, like any, um, well, like any movie, but certainly any espionage movie, whether it's fiction or or fact-based, you know, they, they necessarily truncate the events because, you know, you can't sit in a movie theatre all day, um, at least not for one single movie. But um, I, I really like that one. Um, and, though, and though not a movie, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, the TV series The Assets, which is um, about the Aldrich James uh, case and, the, and the, the two women that, uh, in the face of institutional ambivalence, uh, pursued it to the end and, and brought him to justice. We've lost more assets in the last three months than at any other time in our history. The whole thing was a setup. The asset would have seen them hiding, waiting. Whatever it is, we're getting hammered. They're destroying our eyes inside the Soviet Union. They have an end to the agency art. They've cracked us. Yeah, Gary stole my answer. I, I think Breach, uh, you know, with the hunt for that FBI mole, Robert Hansen, who is played just wonderfully by Chris Cooper. You know what's going on behind that door? No, sir. Analysts. Looking for a spy inside the intelligence community. Highest clearance. But there aren't any CIA officers in there. You know why? Because it's a CIA officer we're trying to build a case against. Now, could the mole be someone from the Bureau and not the CIA? Of course. Are we actively pursuing that possibility? Of course not. Because we're the Bureau. And the Bureau knows all. He is just kind of this malevolent, evil guy, and he pulls it off so well. Um, it's it's really just a fascinating character study, and at the same time, you're just totally drawn into this spy operation. You can't wait to see what happens. I also enjoyed The Falcon and the Snowman. I think it was mostly based on the performances of Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. I think you were very pulled into just the personal stories on those. Give me it. What? The camera. What's wrong? You crazy government secrets of the Soviet Union? Jim, I don't care if she didn't believe you. Now, you give me the camera. All right, it's $189 plus tax. I think we should split it. What's this? Nothing, just some coke. And hey, when did this start? Well, it's just coke. Oh, really? Don't lie to me now. When did this start? Well, that, my don't lie! It's heroin! I don't even shoot it up. I just snort it, okay? How much? Maybe a couple of hundred dollars a week. So what? And just to return to Le Carre, what are some of the more recent or upcoming adaptations that you have particularly liked or are excited about? I'm going to leave our mutual modern era favorite author to Jeff to talk about. But what I will say, there's an, there's an upcoming readaptation again on, on television of The Icarus File. And I know that when they made the movie adaptation, they couldn't deal with the part of it that takes place during the... Uh, the nuclear bomb test on the island for budgetary constrictions. I know that the script was re rewritten 
as a result of that. And I'm, I don't know if it's going to be brought into the forthcoming adaptation, but uh, but I hope so. I'm I'm really looking forward to to seeing that. That's a, a a big thing for me, and I think we'll be getting that sometime this fall. Yeah, I would say when it comes to John le Carre adaptions, the most recent one that I really really enjoyed was a most wanted man with uh philip seymour hoffman's if not his final and one of his final performances our sources don't come to us we find them uh, we become their friends their brothers their fathers their lovers if we have to uh, when they're ours and only then we direct them at bigger targets it takes a minnow to catch a barracuda, a barracuda to catch a shark. I don't fish, Herr Bachmann. It's a metaphor, Eric. Just a metaphor. We take our time. We watch. We wait. Uh, we see what Allah provides. Uh, well, this time Allah has provided Isa Kopov and his ill-gotten millions. It managed to make you mad and appreciate, you know, uh, the work that spies do do at the same time. I think it, it just was really uh, a, a great adaptation and it also talked about kind of the world that we're living in right now in a way that I thought was very, very interesting and made you, made you think, which I think the best, the best of his books and movies do that. They stay with you after and you keep thinking about them. And I think that one especially did that for me. Yeah, that's a powerful film. And the one I like is not is not liked by many, which is not unusual for me. Um, but it's our kind of traitor. I'm like Misha. I'm a threat to the prince. I'm a threat to Kremlin. I know where the money comes from. They will kill me. They will kill my family too, if you don't help me. Help you? What can I do? When you go back to London, Give this to your MI6. At the airport, you tell them you have a gift from the number one money launderer from the Russian mafia. Tell who? Dima, you've got the wrong guy. I have no one else. For me, anyway, it's got some standout performances uh, in it, um, not least of which is uh, Stalin Skarsgård. But I really enjoyed that. But it, I seem to be somewhat in the minority. But um, I, th I think it's worth checking out. And I know I like to focus mostly on film, but I know both of you have an affection for a lot of the TV series and serialized uh, adaptations. So to go out with, uh, would you like to mention any TV shows or series that are espionage, a more real, that present a more realistic world of espionage that you'd like to highlight? With all of the streaming outlets out there right now, there's just a bounty of spy. It seems like every streamer has to have their own little spy show that's serialized. And so um, I think there, you can't throw rock without hitting one. Uh, some of my favorites have been, you know, I love The Night Manager. I thought that was great. Berlin Station is another really good spy TV show um, that's out there. And there's one on the horizon with... Um, uh, our very own uh, George Smiley, Gary Oldman, taking the lead in Slow Horses, which is an adaptation of McHeron's TV, uh, McHeron's novel series that I think is going to be really great on Apple TV coming up very soon. They're filming, finishing filming up the second season right now, and they haven't even released the first one yet. So 
Um, yeah, certainly very excited for that. Um, there's an Israeli show on, on Netflix called Fowder, which sort of straddles the line between espionage and I, I hesitate to say thriller. I suppose it's almost a sort of military thing, but it, it concerns itself with um, Israeli uh, counterterrorism units. And that's extremely grounded and v- a, a very good um, show. There's at least three seasons of it, maybe more. Um, well worth a look. Um, also, the the film with Martin Freeman, The Operative, um, that that's a terrific and very very grounded film, and actually has, um, as we were discussing uh, just now, it's got a seventies style ambiguous ending on it as well. Um, but I really I really enjoyed that. Um, but as Jeff says, really, you can't throw a rock without hitting a spy show at the moment, and I think it's going to be that way for some time, at least until we regain some trust in our government. All right. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about both fantasy spies and now real world spies. Uh, It's been really delightful. And uh, maybe we'll have to reconvene next year for the 60th anniversary of Cinematic Bond and talk a little more about uh, some of those aspects. Fantastic. Thank you for, uh, for hosting us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great talking. That wraps up the final spy edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. Next, we leave the Cold War world behind, but hold on to some of that darkness and betrayal as we head into the shadowy terrain of film noir with TCM's Noir Alley host, Eddie Muller. Beth, the, the key to what made noir so unique and special and a bit subversive in Hollywood of that era was that it was the first time that the people who were doing the wrong thing were the protagonists of the films. And remember to check out Cinema Junkie's companion videos from the Geeky Gourmet, because I take a field trip to the lion's share to speak with a mixologist about cocktails that are full of intrigue. There are a number of rules for cocktail making, and the Vesper breaks like most of them. You can find the videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash Cinema Junkie. And now I'd like to acknowledge the talented mix of people who make Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland, technical director, Rebecca Chacon, and director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie.